It's great to be with you this morning. I have the uh, privilege in my position of going around sometimes and installing uh, pastors as they're coming to churches for the first time. And uh, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I was uh, heading out of the house in the morning, heading out actually to one of our small rural churches to install the pastor. And on the way there, I stopped at a convenience store to get a can of soda. And as I was in the convenience store, I turned the corner and there was a little boy who took a look at me and looked absolutely terrified and turned around and ran away, which is always very affirming, uh, especially the older you get. And, uh, but anyways, a, a couple minutes later, he came back with his mom and he said, Look, Mommy, the governor. <laughs> so, <clears throat> thanks a lot. <clears throat> I went, you know. Without the muscles. Well, so I figure, okay, so now, you know, we no longer have this governor, you know, so, the, okay, so now I'm, I'm in a clear. And about uh, two months ago, a little boy comes up to me and goes, didn't you used to be the governor? So this is something that's going to haunt me, I think. Um, I've never represented the state of Minnesota, um, but I do represent Jesus Christ. And it isn't because I'm a pastor. You represent Jesus Christ, too. And the scary part of this, it's a privilege and a responsibility, but the scary part is we represent Jesus even sometimes when we don't want to or when we don't think people are looking, and they are. And so Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Jesus was telling us that, you know what, the way people, the way you're going to understand God the Father is by what we see in Jesus. Now he's saying what people are going to understand about Jesus is what they see in us. And so it's a challenge for all of us to say, Lord, use me and help me to be Christ-like because how they are going to understand you is oftentimes what they see in me or what they see in us. And ultimately, how they understand God the Father. This is not always an easy thing. Um, I learned a lesson as a kid, and I shared this the other services, so I'll share it again. Um, and had a chance actually to share this over, over at Church of the Open Door when I've spoken over there. But it really was something that impacted me when I was younger. When I was 17 years old, um, or growing up, I grew up at First Covenant Church in Minneapolis, downtown. It's right across uh, from the Hubert Humphrey Metrodome. And uh, growing up uh, with a group of kids, this was, the church was a large church at that time. In fact, it was a mega church really before there were mega churches back in the 1800s there would be a couple thousand people coming on sunday morning well back in the 1870s that was a lot of people and uh, when i was growing up there was still a big group of kids and we were all friends we'd been in boy scouts together grown up together and uh, when we all got to high school age we went to minnehaha academy actually minnehaha academy um, was started by first covenant along with some other churches, and actually uh, the Northwest Conference where I work, the district office for the Covenant, actually owns and operates Minnehaha Academy. Some of your kids, I think, go there. But anyways, so when we got to high school, guess what? All of us got to go to Minnehaha Academy because that was sort of the thing you did if you were at First Covenant Church. So uh, I think my senior year, I think we had some, over 50 children, 50 youths, that were part of Minnehaha, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. And it was great because we'd go to, go to school and we were in English class together. We'd eat lunch together. We'd play football together. Uh, we'd be in the choir together and all of this. And then we'd be able to come to church together. The difficulty is not every kid at First Covenant went to Minnehaha. Most of them did, but some kids didn't. And there was no, militia, no malice involved in this or intended in this, but sometimes the kids that didn't go to Minnehaha Academy, I think, felt left out. Because when we'd come to church, what would we talk about? We'd talk about what had happened in school what had happened in class or what had happened out on the ball field. 
And so some of these kids were kind of pushed to the pushed to the side. They really couldn't enter into the conversation that the rest of us were having. Again, it wasn't malicious. It's just the reality of what was taking place. We'd come into church every Sunday morning, probably 50 strong, literally. And uh, for those of you who maybe have been in First Covenant, we, we hosted some Heart of the City events, so some of you maybe have been in there. It's a big wraparound, old tabernacle-style sanctuary with a balcony that, that wraps all the way around so that everybody's pretty close to the speaker. And we'd come filing in all in a line, and we'd go sit in the curve together in one long row that extended you know, into several different sections, all of us kids. Um, we did this every week. That is until one Sunday as I was coming into church, and as I was walking in, I looked down, and right above the clock, right down the center aisle uh, of, the, uh, of the sanctuary, there was a kid who was in the youth group um, who was sitting all by himself. Um, he wasn't like us. He didn't go to the academy. He didn't seem to like sports. The interest didn't seem the same, and he was pretty much disconnected from the rest of us. And as we were all walking in to go sit down, I looked down and I saw him, and I had genuine sense of compassion for this kid. And I found myself thinking, Lord, this isn't fair. Here we are, all of us, we're, we're friends, we're hanging around together, we've all got the world by the tail, and here's this kid who's also part of the church, and he sits by himself. And so as we were filing in, I turned away from the rest of the group, and I started walking down the, the stairway to go sit by the kid. And I was doing it for the right reasons. I was doing it out of a sense of compassion and love. I was doing it out of a sense of what I believed to be just or unjust and that this did not seem just, that this kid would have no connections. I started going down the steps for the right reason. That way till I got about halfway down the steps. And when I did, I looked up at the choir loft, which was straight ahead. And back then, the choir was 100 people strong, including my own parents. And as I looked up at the choir loft, they could see what I was doing, and they were all smiling at me. They were beaming. My parents were beaming. They were so proud. And in fact, one of my dad's friends even gave me a, a thumbs up down by his belt. They were proud of me. And something happened in my heart. I started going down the steps for this kid, but by the time I got halfway down, it had become about me. I didn't mean for that to happen. I wasn't intending that. But all of a sudden, I found myself thinking, you know what? There's a reason they're proud of me. I'm proud of me. I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, after all, I'm at least as popular as all these other kids, but I am willing to go and not know. I won't sit with my friends. I'll go down and sit with this kid. You know, I'm a pretty good, I'm a mature Christian guy for a, you know, for a high school kid. Something in my heart changed. Now, I wasn't thinking all those thoughts, but I could tell in just kind of a nanosecond that something had happened in my heart that had changed. And I was no longer thinking about this kid I was thinking about how it made me look and how it made me feel. And it felt so good to have the whole choir loft giving me smiles of affirmation. And let me suggest that that happened not because I was a 17-year-old kid. Let me suggest that that can happen to all of us at any age or stage of life. We start doing things for the right reasons. We start doing ministry for the right reasons. But by the time we're actually doing it, it somehow has become self-serving and manipulative. Let me suggest that this doesn't just happen to people. Let me suggest that this can happen to churches. In my position, I have a chance to meet, to do strategic planning with many of our existing churches. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard something in a leadership board meeting to these, this effect. One person will say, you know, we need more people. 
someone else will say, you know, we just, we need, we need uh, more musicians in our worship band. Um, we need more Sunday school teachers. You know, we just don't have enough giving units to, to navigate what we're trying to do with the mortgage. Um, you know, we, we, need more, we need more kids in the youth group. Then someone says, well, what are we going to do? And someone says, let's do ministry. And something changes. I thought ministry was about the other person and their need to enter into a living relationship with Jesus. I didn't think ministry was primarily about what can we do to get people in here because we have needs. So let's reach out in love so that our needs are met. And something changes. It's not the intent. There's no malice, but it becomes ever so subtle. And churches that start out doing things for the right reasons, for the sake of other people, because they love people, really love them, not just pretend to love them, really love them. People that start out to do ministry because we really love Jesus Christ, the next thing you know, sometimes we're doing things because it's feathering our own nest or it's helping ourselves to something. And you know what? People can spot that usually a mile away when something's self-serving. And yet so often this is what happens. And so one of the things that I want to do today is to, to affirm what you are doing here at Woodland Hills, even in the, in the assistance of the development of the sanctuary of Ephraim Smith's church. Because clearly you have a relationship with him. You're, you're mentoring him. Greg Boyd is mentoring Ephraim. These are wonderful things. You're giving generously financially. All these things. And I want to affirm it because there's no direct link in other words, you're not necessarily on the front end benefiting per se. You are giving. And the world sees this, and other churches see this, and this is a model. And so we have Woodland Hills, and we have Church of the Open Door, and we have a Salem Covenant Church in New Brighton joining together with the Northwest Conference to say, what can we do to impact the city for Jesus Christ? What can we do to be thinking kingdom-wise? I've literally gotten calls from around the country, people saying, is this true that these different churches from different backgrounds are coming together to do this? They just can't believe it because it's something that doesn't happen that often because it isn't necessarily directly self-serving and it shows how much of ministry can become that if we're not careful. You're being very generous with your funding and uh, so is Open Door, and we appreciate that. The, the reality is the monies that are given are more than are needed just simply to start a church. This isn't just about starting a church. This is about developing a collaborative kingdom relationship with each other. The amount of money that's coming in is going to allow significant community development to take place. And there's been, uh, there's been talk and dreaming and praying about what if, what if a year from now, what if two years from now, what if the collaborative partners came back together again with new collaborative partners, and what if we started a multi-ethnic, ethnically-led, multi-resourced, entrepreneurial, aggressive church in the city of St. Paul? What if we came together and did that? And what if both of these churches in Minneapolis and St. Paul grew to such a point of strength that, quite frankly, they did not need other churches just to stay alive, which sometimes happens in the city. Churches get to a point where, where, where everything's about finances because they're just barely keeping the doors open. What if there were strong partners in both of the cities that we could all collaborate with to do significant community development work, 
to talk about things like justice. Sometimes evangelicals, we don't talk about that stuff because we think it sounds social gospel, and we've reacted way the other way. You know, we talk about people's salvation, which we should, but we also ought to be talking about why is it that there isn't housing for these people? Why is it that these people are struggling? Why aren't there jobs? And this is one of the things that we can collaborate together to do. And so I want to thank you for the part that you're playing in that. You know, Jesus knows that we need to see examples of what it means to really love. It isn't just about making theological statements. It isn't just describing love, although the Bible does that. But, but God gives to us examples. Jesus was the Word made flesh, and he came because it allows us to see examples of what it is that God really requires or desires from us. And we're going to be looking at one of those examples this morning for the time that we have left. John chapter 4. Uh, sometimes we call this story the woman at the well. Sometimes we call it um, um, the Samaritan woman. Um, maybe we could just as well call it how a village got saved, because that's really what happened as we see Jesus reaching out. And so I'm going to be reading from John chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a woman, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And then in the New International, in parentheses, verse 8, it says, His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Again, in parentheses in the New International, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. 
But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. At that point, Jesus speaks a little bit with the disciples about the the harvest fields being white unto harvest. Then verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. We're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The word had is probably significant. You see, um, most Jews did not like to go through Samaria. They didn't like the people that lived there. They did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a symbol to the Jews of betrayal of the Hebrew faith in some ways. Many of the Samaritans had both Jewish and pagan or heathen or Gentile blood coursing through their veins. And so many of the Samaritans were a walking testimony of what many Jews believed was a betrayal. Even those Jews who lived among the Samaritans oftentimes found themselves uh, adapting some of the Samaritan ways of of living. And so there was a belief that this distorted some of the Hebrew faith and, and, and made it into a perversion. So there was not a relationship between these two groups. No love lost between them. It appears it was even more so that from the Jewish side, one of the verses, verse 9, again says this, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's interesting, it doesn't say Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other. It says Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so we clearly see the pecking order of how people perceive different people groups. And yet into this quagmire of distrust and anger and prejudice and disdain walks Jesus. And Jesus enters into a dialogue, into a conversation, into the beginning of a relationship with an unsuspecting and unlikely person. And we'll see really the most unlikely of people. This Samaritan, this woman, this Samaritan woman. Friends, can we even catch a glimpse of just how radical or unorthodox this was? It's hard for us to understand it. But but what it really tells us is that Jesus probably wouldn't be all that welcome in most of our churches. He would be too way off the edge, too radical, too unorthodox. And yet here we have the Son of God, the creator of the universe, who enters into a relationship with this person. The verse that has haunted me in recent months is verse 8. Again, in the New International, it says it in parentheses, almost as an aside, like it's really no big deal. But it says this, Now the Jews, now the disciples, had gone into town to buy food. Think about that with me for a moment. The disciples had to go into town to buy food, to buy supplies. What does that signify? Especially when we remember that all of these Mideastern cultures were cultures of hospitality and neighborliness and friendliness. That's what they were. Cultures of hospitality. 
This was not just built into the sacred scriptures of the Hebrews or the Samaritans. It wasn't just their religious duty to be hospitable. It was literally built into the very fabric of their culture. So what did a culture of hospitality do? Let's say you needed a place to stay, especially if you were a stranger. You would knock on a door and say, I don't have a place to stay. And what did the culture dictate, let alone the sacred scriptures? It dictated that the person would say, come on in, you can stay here. And in fact, you sleep on my mat, I'll sleep on the floor. That's what a culture of hospitality did. Or you were hungry, and you said to someone, I don't, I don't have anything to eat. What did the culture of hospitality dictate? Here, I, I don't have a lot, but you can have part of it. We'll split it. That's what a culture of hospitality did. When many of us were little, maybe you were up at a Bible camp or something, and there was a song back in the 60s and 70s that sometimes was a camp song, and, and, it, and it points to the same principle. It went like this, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. I don't have what you're asking, but, but what I have, I'll give you it. Or think to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the disciples, none of these folks knew what was going to happen. There's one little boy with a basket and all these people, but what do they do? Even before, you know, we know in retrospect now that it was a miracle, but they didn't on the front context know that. What did they start to do? They started to divide up even the little bit they had because that's what you did in a culture of hospitality. And yet, while Jesus was speaking with this woman and beginning to connect with her, the disciples were having to buy food. You know, the story says that Jews wouldn't associate with Samaritans. That's not completely true. Or it depends on what we mean by the word associate. You see, it does appear that the disciples were willing to transact business with a Samaritan shopkeeper. They were willing to be in a transactional relationship, but they wouldn't be in a connectional relationship. So when it says they wouldn't associate, what it really means is there'll be no real heartfelt connection. You give me food, I'll give you money. Plain and simple. We both know the rules. Clean deal. You stay on your side of the fence, I'll stay on my side. We know what's expected. Follow the rules. That's what it means. And so the disciples sought a transaction while Jesus was seeking a connection. He connects by taking the Samaritan woman seriously, by listening to her, by respecting her. He cannot, he connects by taking this Samaritan woman and saying, you know what? She has something to offer. She has something to offer me. I need something from her. She has something to bring to the table, so to speak. Think about this, and it it speaks of the humility of God. Here we have the Son of God lifting her up as one to relate to as an equal in their humanity. He acknowledges that she, in fact, has something he needs. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, in that moment of time in his flesh, conveys his own need, his own vulnerability. Now, that's the way we talk. They didn't talk like that. But think about it. He acknowledges to this one his need. What does he do? 
What's the first thing that's stated in the story that we have recorded? It says this, He said to her, because he was tired, Woman, could you get me a drink? Could you help me? You have something that I need. Now, clearly, she's got needs and issues and all the rest of it, too, and he, and he talks about them. But, but, you know, he's not hammering on her. This isn't a top-down conversation. Jesus is not looking down his nose at her. What they talked about was done in the context of their conversation. You see, there was an openness, and if you look throughout what took place in the story, the woman time and time again asked Jesus questions. Why did she feel she could ask him? Because she felt safe with him. Because he was taking her seriously, and he was showing her respect. You see, that's part of what it is to be in a relationship. The beginning of any relationship is that there's give and take. We can talk about being in a mutual relationship or mutuality in a relationship. Something that's pretty basic, don't you think? Some kind of equilibrium where when you're in a friendship with someone, you neither take too much nor do you give too much. There's sort of this kind of thing that takes place. I think we know this intuitively to be true. It's why following church today, some of you could go out for dinner. And one of you may say, hey, I'll pick up the tab. And chances are, here's what the other person might say besides thank you. They may say, next time, it's on me. Why? Because there's some intuitive sense that a relationship's about give and take. It's not all one-sided. Because when something becomes one-sided, it doesn't feel like it's healthy. It doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel like it's real. You see, Jesus keeps the relationship mutual. Jesus levels the playing field. Jesus valued and respected this woman. This was not about spiritual handouts. And the relationships we're in cannot be about handouts. Some of you think back to when you were in high school and maybe you had a a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And, you know, if they came up to you and said something like, oh, you know what, I just can't live without you, you know, that felt so good. You know, and it sounded so poetic and romantic. But so if you said, oh, you know, I feel the same way. And then if they looked at you and said, no, I mean it. Uh, I really can't live without you. Then it's like, okay, now you're creeping me out. You know, this is, <clears throat> you know, this, okay, now, you know, something just happened here. This, this, this doesn't feel good anymore. Because it's not a mutual relationship. It's not in here. It's starting to get like this. Or maybe some of you were the creepy ones. It's possible. Where all of a sudden you began to realize in your own life, you know what, I, ne- I really need this person in a, in a way that's not healthy. I've become dependent upon this person. In fact, if I don't talk to them every hour, I, just, I almost feel like my world's falling apart. When that happens to us, we say, oh, this, this just doesn't feel good. Why? Because it's not a mutuality. There's no equilibrium in the relationship. And Jesus understood that. And Jesus understood what it meant to love, and he also understood that part of loving is respecting and and respecting boundaries, that that's a big part of it. You know, you have a, a, a tagline on your sign out there under Woodland Hills that says, tearing down walls, and that's great, and that's a, that's a great vision. But you know what? You can't do it by yourself. In fact, if you try, it's just going to look condescending because there's another group of people. There are other people involved in this 
And you may have a part to play in tearing down the wall on this side, but you know there are other people on the other side of the wall that also have to be involved. Because if we don't respect other people, if we don't understand that, and if we don't realize that it isn't just us giving or doing something, it's that we need to receive things from other people, that they have something to give us, we have something that we can learn. If we don't understand that, it's not going to feel like a real connection. It's not going to feel like a real relationship. Jesus was respectful. Um, Kevin, Pastor Kevin was up here earlier. If, if after church, he said to me, oh, man, I was supposed to take a picture of, uh, of, the, front of, the, of the front of the church today, and I forgot my camera at home. If I said to him, oh, you know what? Actually, my camera's out in the car. And I've got one picture left. Feel free, you know, just take it. And I'm getting the film developed this week, and I'll mail you the, mail you the picture. He'd say, oh, thanks. But if I said to him, you know, actually, Kevin, as I think about it, I have a much nicer camera at home. Now, I live in Maple Grove, but you know what? No, seriously, just stay here. I'll run home and get my better camera. And, in fact, I'll stop at, at Ritz on the way, because actually there's a film that probably would be a better film for what you're trying to do inside here. In fact, in fact, you know, maybe I should buy a new camera. That at, at some point he would say, okay, now you've crossed boundary. And it's kind of like, why is it that, that everything you're saying to me is supposedly helpful to me? Everything you're saying to me is nice, but why is it now that now I feel like you're violating me? I'll tell you why. Because it no longer feels like we're doing something with someone. It doesn't even feel like we're doing something for someone it starts to feel like we're doing something to someone. And that feels way different to people. And Jesus understood that. Jesus was respectful. Jesus levels the playing field by first, the first thing is, could you help me? I need something that you can do. He also levels the playing field when she starts to talk about worship. It's interesting, he does it again. She says, uh, you know, we, we think we're supposed to worship here, and you say uh, Jerusalem is the place. You know, what is it? And, uh, you know, he's, he's up front with her. He says, well, you know, you're kind of worshiping what you don't really understand, and, and, and the Jews have a, have a clear understanding of this. But then he says, yet a time is coming. In fact, it's now. It, it, it isn't about here. It's not about there. He levels it again. This isn't about winning or losing or one-upmanship. It's not about here. It's not about there. Really, worship is about worshiping in spirit and truth. It's got to be what's real. That's really what God is looking for. And so in that, we don't have the upper hand. This is about us being in this kind of equilibrium of relationship. Well, the disciples return from their shopping spree. And it's clear by what is said that they're absolutely mortified. Uh, Verse 27, it says, Nobody asked Jesus, What are you doing? Or, why are you talking with her? Obviously implying that they were dying to know. I mean, after all, she had three strikes against her in that context. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she was a whore. Or at least we could say she appeared to be living a whore-like existence. Three strikes against her, and they could not believe that Jesus would be talking to her. And you know what? The truth is she couldn't believe it either. She says so. She says, why is it that you, a a Jew, you're talking to me, a Samaritan woman? I mean, she knew who she was. 
She knew the pecking order in terms of how society was viewing her and this group of people. And, and she knew what she had been doing personally. In fact, the whole town knew, probably was out drawing water by herself because nobody else wanted to hang with her. And yet Jesus connected with this one the very first thing. Have you ever noticed this, that, that what God does, God works out on the edges, God works out on the extremes, and the reason he does it is because he says, if I can work on the extremes and make it happen, I can handle anything that you can throw at me. What's the worst thing that happened in all of creation? What's the worst thing that has happened in all of history, all eternity? The worst thing is we killed God. We killed God. And yet, what's the most glorious thing that ever happened? God took the most heinous thing and turned it into our redemption. God took the worst thing that ever happened and turned it into the most glorious thing. God worked out on the edges. He said, I take the worst and make it the best. So you know what? Your bad is nothing. I can turn your bad into good because I've taken the worst and made it the best. And so Jesus comes to this woman, this woman who was of an outcast people, and the reality is this woman who was an outcast of the outcasts. From a human standpoint, at that time for the Jews, she was absolutely the lowest of the lows. She was rejected by those that were rejecting. She is the loser of the losers, and it's to this one that Jesus says, could you help me, the Son of God? It's incredible. Think about that. It's amazing. Could you give me a drink of water? Could you help me? Also, he says, she says, you know, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And what does she say? And what does he say? He says this, I who speak to you am he. You know how few times in Scripture Jesus really comes out and says that he's the Messiah? Like almost never. He gave questions back, didn't answer straight. And in this case, this woman, this outcast of outcasts, he just comes right out and says, you know what, I'm entrusting this to you, who everyone else would view as the lowest of the lows. That's the gospel. And this woman had guts. This woman had courage because you know what she did? She goes back to the village and probably to people that despised her and probably to people that were, had already rejected her. But she had the good news, and she said, i got to go tell someone. She showed courage. The disciples weren't showing any courage. She showed courage. And you know what? The townspeople showed courage because they had the guts to say, well, let's go check it out. You know, it's interesting. Someone last night told me when I was speaking afterwards, they said, you know, we always give stars to our children when they invite their friends. You know what? Maybe you ought to be giving more stars also to the children that come. Because you know what? Sometimes the ones who show guts, the ones that are courageous, are the ones that take the step to come. You know, it's not that courageous for me to invite someone I know into my environment. You know, if I got 300 friends and I say, hey, come on, what's, what's so brave about that? What's brave is the person who says, okay, I'll come. And they walk into something that is just clearly outside the bounds of where they li- would live their lives. We ought to be giving the stars to them. And the Samaritan woman goes back and proclaims, you've got to come see this guy. He told me all about things about me that, that he couldn't have known. And note what happens. All because of the connection that Jesus made with this woman. 
verse 40. It says they urged Jesus to stay. Another translation said they begged Jesus to stay. And he stayed for two days sharing about life and about the kingdom of God. And scripture tells us that many came to faith. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus and the disciples were still having to go out and buy food? Were they still having to transact? Of course not, because they were friends. They were talking, and it was safe place. And many came to faith. The transactional stuff went out the window because they were now in a relationship. So hospitality, again, won the day, and people were added to the kingdom. They were added to the kingdom not because of the disciples' transaction. They were added to the kingdom because of Jesus' connection. And lest this sound simple, let me suggest that the disciples' worlds became a lot messier on that day. It had been nice and clean and neat before. They knew how they were supposed to view the Samaritans. They kept their distance. And yet picture it. Now that first night, the disciples lying on the mat of a Samaritan person, thinking, how did I get here? How did this happen? What would I tell my father? What would I tell my mom? What would I tell the people at the, at the synagogue or the, the people I work? How, what, how did this happen? You see, transaction is black and white. Connection, well, there's a whole lot of gray in connection. Isn't that true? Sometimes that's why we avoid it, because it gets messy. You can have someone in a church, some man in a church that's, like, that's the most damning over a certain issue, let's just say divorce, and someone who's just like on a crusade all the time and just, just hard-nosed and harsh and, and, and condemning of anyone that would be divorced or you know, any of this. That is until their own daughter, their own little girl gets divorced. Then all of a sudden it's a whole different ballgame. Why? Because his world just got messy. And you can love your neighbor, and now your neighbor can be involved in stuff that makes you uncomfortable, and now all of a sudden your world got messy. How is it that I still love this person and stay in relationship, but, but now I'm conflicted? It was easier before I knew them where I could just say they're wrong. You know, if they don't change, they're going to hell. I'm sticking with my beliefs. Connection is gray. Transaction is having to. Connection is wanting to. Transaction is all business. Connection is something that becomes personal. Because we have a God who takes things personally. Transaction is clean and tidy. Connection is messy and confusing because it messes with our presuppositions and our neat little worldviews. That's what connection does. And let me suggest that it's one of the reasons in so many churches where there are strong world mission programs, which there should be, and there are people in the church that would, would, would do anything but let the world mission program die, and, they, and that's, that's good and that's right. But let me suggest that many of those same people really wouldn't barely bat an eye sometimes if something local stopped. Why is that? I think, quite frankly, it's because for most of us, world missions is transactional. And it has to be because I'm not there. So what do I do? I put money in the offering plate. The missionary comes back once a year, tells me what they're doing. Now, they're, they're being connectional. I'm paying them transactionally to be connectional. But they come back, they report. I say, hey, way to be. Good job. Do it again. Pray. Send them back out. I know what to expect. Maybe a slideshow. But I know what to expect. It's nice and clean. But you know what? So often in local ministry, it's not so clean. And I want to affirm you, even as you're doing your capital campaign for your youth center, that's wonderful. But you know what? That's going to be messy. 
reality is it's going to be messy because all of a sudden you're actually going to be interacting with the lives of all these kids. And, and, and it's just not clean, and it doesn't work that way. And yet that is what Jesus calls us to do. Well, how is it then, my friends, that your neighbors are going to hear about the living water that Jesus provides? It's when you love them from the heart, when you really love them. No strings attached, no manipulative agenda, no hidden motive. It's why the Apostle Paul says, let your love be genuine. The reason he says this is because it's, it's not self-evident. Sometimes we can fake love in order to get something. We can fake love in order to feel affirmed or to get a new giving unit. He knows that we can do that, and so he says, make sure your love is genuine. And then when we love and then when we share about the gospel of Jesus Christ, as God provides the opportunity, and that's so important, as God provides the opportunity. You see, sometimes we in our evangelistic zeal, we're just going to ram it down someone's throat whether they're ready for it or not so that we feel like we've done our duty. And again, it becomes about us, not them. Sometimes people say, have you ever noticed how when you share about Jesus with someone, you feel like you got more out of it than they did? Maybe sometimes you did. And maybe that's why you feel that way. We have to be respectful of people and say, Lord, I'm going to love them unconditionally. And you know what? I trust that you're a big God and you will provide opportunities that are just perfect for me very naturally in the midst of us being in a mutual relationship where there's give and take and respectful and respecting of boundaries. I will trust that you will open doors where this is just going to be natural. I can just relax. I don't have to be uptight saying, I just got to do it today. I got to do it today. No, you don't. You can relax. God has been patient with us we can be patient with others and trust that God is a big enough God to be able to provide us the opportunities when he thinks he deems that it's time. A little child comes up to their mom and says, Mommy, where do babies come from? The child, the mom would be uh, disrespectful of the child and it would really be abusive if the mom said, you know what? Um, um, Sit down, I got something to tell you. It's going to be a tough statement. That's not what a mom does. What does a mom do? A mom says, from God. That's all the child's asking. And so mothers, in their love for their children, we give people information as they can absorb it. And that's what the Lord asks us to do too. Let people digest it. They'll come back and ask another question. We don't need to shoot the whole thing right now at them. We need to be respectful. And then how will the community around this church know about the living water? It's when you as a church continue to be a true lover of this community. When you reach out because of that love. Learn what a 17-year-old kid down at First Covenant needed to learn, and that is that it's not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not about us. It really is about people that need to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's about those we meet as we journey through our days when we sit down at the wells of our lives and have an opportunity to, to be in relationship and connection with other people. Those, those for whom the, the, God, the love of God through Christ is a foreign concept or an unknown reality. How will you give witness to the living water of God? How will you do it so that others will say, you know what, I believe this stuff now, not just because of what you've told me, Woodland Hills. I believe it because I've come to see Jesus myself, and I truly believe that he's the Savior of the world. Would you bow your heads with me? God we commit ourselves to that end, to be lovers of people, even as we are lovers of you.
Purify our hearts and make them soft and tender towards those that are far from you. Use us even this coming week as we enter into relationships that are born out of our love for both you and those you place in our path. And now as we leave this place this morning, may what we have said with our lips, may we truly believe it in our hearts and help us to practice it in our lives. Help us to be lovers of people because we are lovers of you. And in your mercy, keep us faithful. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who, yes, brings to us the living water. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Thanks.